Turn with me, if you would, to the Gospel of John. We're going to be looking this morning at the last portion of the second chapter of this Gospel and the first portion of chapter 3. You have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. The big numbers in your Bible books are not inspired by God. They were added, chapter and verse divisions, to help us to find our way in the Word of God, to assist us in memorizing the Word of God. But they are not perfect divisions of the Word of God. And that is why this morning we are going to look at portions that overlap chapters 2 and 3. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 2 beginning at verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. When they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would open up your word to us. That in it we would see the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That in it we would see our duty that you have called us to, to believe upon Jesus Christ, to trust in him, that we might be born again, that we might be made anew. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Perhaps more pointedly, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Perhaps most pointedly, what does it mean to savingly believe 
in Jesus. John chapter 3 is one of the most well-known and famous chapters in all of the Bible. But why is it here? What is John trying to tell us that we need to know? Jesus talks about being born again, which is a very common phrase that we are used to hearing. But what does he mean when he says born again? Why is it important for you to hear that today? We must understand the new birth because it is essential. Absolutely. There is no way to God without the new birth. There is no true faith apart from the new birth. If you would be right with God, you have to listen to Jesus. You must be born again. This morning, I'd like us to see three things about the new birth. First, John shows us the need for new birth. And then secondly, he shows us the necessity of new birth. And then finally, he reveals to us the source of new birth. The need for new birth, the necessity of new birth, and the source of new birth. Let's begin then by looking at the need for new birth. It begins here with verse 23 of chapter 2. Verse 23 starts on an apparent high note. We have seen so far two signs that testify to Jesus. At the beginning of chapter 2, we saw Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding feast. And in this, Jesus showed himself to be the Lord of creation, able to make creation obey his will. And then we saw Jesus go into the temple and clear it out of those who were ruining worship, who were seeking to prevent others from worshiping the true and living God properly. At that time, Jesus was asked for a sign of his authority to do that. And Jesus spoke of the greatest sign that would be to come. His resurrection. Now, at the end of this chapter, we see that Jesus did other unspecified miracles. John says there were other signs that he was doing in verse 23. And the result of this appears to be great success. Many believed in his name when they saw. And this is important because we have seen over and over again that the theme verse for John's gospel is found in the 20th chapter. He wrote this gospel that you may believe and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is important to John to see others believing. And so we're not even out of chapter 2. And already Jesus appears to be a great success. Isn't this what we hope for? Isn't this what we expect? Don't we want people to believe in Jesus? Don't we take any movement toward Jesus, any acknowledgement of Jesus as a positive sign in someone's life? If Jesus were in Katy and he performed these signs and he was the talk 
of the town. And people said they believed in his name. Wouldn't we rejoice? But there's a problem here. Verse 23 is not the end of the chapter. There are two more verses that give more about what's going on. The problem is that Jesus knows the truth. In verse 24, we are told that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, that is, those who believed. And Jesus' response is not what we expect. If we were in charge, we would be glad and we would do as much as we could to engage with these so-called believers. We would see them as sensitive seekers and try to engage them and bring them into the life of the church and encourage them that they did believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they had salvation in their possession. But Jesus doesn't do that here. What's going on? I think the translation, while it is accurate, doesn't exactly help us here. The word that is translated in trust can mean in trust, but you lose the sense of it because it's actually the exact same word as believe in verse 23. We could say, Jesus did not believe in them. They said they believed in Jesus, but Jesus found something lacking, something important in their response to him. And this confronts us with a real problem. You see, we are used to thinking of people in two categories. There are those people who are pro-Jesus and those people who are anti-Jesus. And that can be an easy division in our culture. There are clearly those in our culture today who despise Jesus, who want nothing to do with the church, who reject God's word. And so anyone who shows any positive signs must be on Jesus' side, right? Jesus shows us that there's a third option. Some people have positive thoughts and effects toward Jesus. But it is not real believing. It's not real trust in the Savior. It is not enough to think good thoughts about Jesus. To believe that the Bible is helpful for families and churches and society. The only belief that matters is a matter of the heart. A belief in Jesus that trusts Jesus for everything. A belief that is a result of a fundamental change in a person. We'll look at that change in just a moment. Now, why would Jesus be such a downer here? Why isn't Jesus glad that some people are believing? What is wrong with their believing? Well, verse 25 tells us why. It's that Jesus did not believe in them because he knew what was in man. Jesus does not need us to tell him our motives. He doesn't need us to tell him what, he, what we believe. He knows us better than we know ourselves. You see, as we interact with other people, we have to try to discern their motives. 
We have to try to understand if there is truth behind their words, if they're saying everything that they think or believe, or if they're holding something back. But not Jesus. No, Jesus, John tells us, knows everything about all people. Do you see that there in verse 24? There are no exceptions here. So you don't get to be an exception to whom Jesus knows about. Jesus knows everything about you. He knows your every thought. He knows your every desire. He knows every word you say and every word you hold back. He knows everything that you love and everything that you hate. He knows what you think of God's word. He knows what you think of him. All without you saying a word. And that shouldn't surprise us because John has already told us that Jesus is God. And so we need to stop thinking that we can hold something back from Jesus. That we can put something behind the curtain that he won't see. That we can somehow say something that is not true of ourselves and Jesus will believe it. And Jesus knew why they were attracted to him at this time. They were attracted to him because of the signs. You see, John writes... Many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And this is a present participle verb, when they saw. That means it's almost causal in its intention. We might even translate it that they believed in his name because they saw the signs. They were attracted to the power that Jesus showed. They were attracted to the benefits that he could give. But Jesus knew better. He knew them better than they knew themselves. Have you ever examined your relationship to Jesus? What are you really seeking from him? What do you really need? It's easy to see only two categories and then to convince ourselves that we are on team Jesus. But here Jesus challenges us. Jesus knows your heart. You can't hide anything from him. Jesus knows you need to be born again. To trust in him for a complete change. To be freed from the wickedness of your sin and the wrath of God and to be sheltered under the cross. Come to Jesus not for the benefits that you think he brings, but because you need a Savior. Next, it's almost as if John knows we need an example to go to. And so John gives us a story, a story that shows us the necessity of the new birth. It's the story of Nicodemus. Now, again, you need to take out of your mind that big three that is there in your Bibles. Put your thumb over it if it helps. And I want you to see there's an obvious connection here. In verse 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man named Nicodemus. Do you see the connection? Nicodemus is the man. He's just given a name. But Jesus knows what's in man. This is a well-known story. And so we must examine it and not assume we know the story. 
This will prevent us from missing what John is saying. Now, who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus, first, we are told, is a Pharisee. Now, this is something that we need to think about for just a moment. Because as soon as I say Nicodemus was a Pharisee, you almost expect me to say it in a certain tone. Now, Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And we want some kind of somber movie music behind. Cue the bad guy. These are the bad guys here. That's who they are. But in Jesus' day, that's not how they would have been seen. The Pharisees were the Bible teachers. The Pharisees were the ones who were moral in a sea of immorality. The Pharisees are the ones who memorized God's word and God's law. The Pharisees were the ones that your equivalents would go to the Amazon marketplace and buy the scrolls that they wrote for their daily devotions. They're the good guys in this society. But Nicodemus is more than a moral religious leader. He's also, John tells us, a ruler of the Jews. Now, the Jews were ruled underneath the authority of the Roman Empire. One of the ways that Rome administered their empire for the least amount of trouble to themselves is they used local authorities as authorities over the local people subject to Roman veto. And so in everyday matters, the Romans didn't try and govern. They didn't know every culture in a perfect way. They didn't want to be bothered straining their resources. And so here, in this area of the world, the Jews had a group called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was kind of a combination, Congress, Supreme Court, and Executive Department, all boiled into one. They were made up of two groups of men, Pharisees and Sadducees, and they helped to lead the people to pass laws, to govern, to keep things in order. And so Nicodemus is not only a trusted religious moral leader, he's a political leader as well. We almost don't have an equivalent in our society, someone who would be this important. But also, don't miss the obvious, Nicodemus is someone who came to Jesus. Now, John tells us he came by night, and so there's a lot of speculation about what that means. Maybe Nicodemus was busy with his day job, so he went at night. Maybe Nicodemus was afraid of being seen by the other Pharisees as going to Jesus. We don't know, but we know he went to Jesus. And when he comes to Jesus, he has good things to say about Jesus. So in this way already, he's not the typical Pharisee. You know, the Pharisees, they're the ones who say to Jesus... What authority do you have to do this? They're the ones who say to Jesus, who do you think you are? Look at how Nicodemus begins in verse 2. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now, rabbi is not just an immediate term of endearment. Rabbi was an official term used for those who had been trained and given the authority of teaching in Israel. And the interesting thing is, Jesus did not receive that formal training. We see that throughout the scriptures as 
the Pharisees look and they say, how can a man speak with this kind of authority? How does he know the scriptures without the training that he should have had? And so what Nicodemus is doing is he's acknowledging that Jesus is a teacher, even though he doesn't have formal training. He is acknowledging Jesus's authority to teach. He's complimenting him. And he says, we know that you come from God. Now, he's speaking for a group. We don't know if he's talking about a group that's with him or some amongst the Pharisees or even the crowds. But clearly, Nicodemus thinks that he needs to tell Jesus, we know you come from God. You're not just a teacher. You're a godly teacher. God sent you to us. So far, so good. And then he says, we know this for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And so he's acknowledging that Jesus has done these signs. He says, Jesus, we know you've done these signs. We've heard about it. We've seen them. This is impressive. And then finally, the last part of his statement is, unless God is with him. And so he says, not only are you from God, not only are you sent from God, Jesus, God is with you now. So, so far, this seems pretty good. All of this gives us a positive impression. Nicodemus must be one of the good guys. He must be on Jesus' side. He must believe in Jesus. And we might be tempted to look ahead to chapter 7 of John's Gospel or chapter 19 of John's Gospel when Nicodemus speaks up for Jesus or when he brings spices to anoint the body of Jesus. So we might count Nicodemus' faith in Christ from this day. But instead, Nicodemus is an example of what John just told us in the last section. We see this when Jesus answered in verse 3. Now it's very interesting. It's clear from the word that Jesus answered him. But do you notice what's missing here? The question. There's no question from Nicodemus. Jesus just answers him. Perhaps Nicodemus was going to ask Jesus if he was something more than a rabbi, more than a good teacher. He might have asked him, are you a prophet? Are you the Messiah? That would have given us some indication of what Nicodemus thought. But Jesus already knows what is in man, including this one. And so his answer challenges Nicodemus. He says to him, truly, truly. Now, when Jesus says that twice in this discourse and other places in the gospel, let me give you a, uh, a translation for that. Hey, listen up. This is important. That's what Jesus means when he says that. And he's not just saying that to Nicodemus. He's saying that to you. Pay attention here to what I'm saying. And he says, Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now remember to whom Jesus is talking here. Remember all that Nicodemus had. He's a moral leader. He's a religious leader. He's a political leader. He's coming and saying good things about Jesus. He's one of the authorities of the town. And Jesus looks right at him and he says, you can't even see the kingdom of God. 
Leon Morris puts it this way. In one sentence, Jesus sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for. And he demands that he be remade by the power of God. Think about this. If Nicodemus can only be saved by the new birth, how could we have hope without it? We don't have a list of credentials as long as Nicodemus's. And yet Jesus looks right at him and he says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus can't believe it. And so he responds with a hyper-literal understanding of what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, Jesus, how can a man, when he's old, be born again? Does he somehow go up into his mother's womb again? And he's born again? Now, think about how ridiculous that sounds, right? Ladies, you all know when you hear the story of someone having a baby, and someone says something like that baby was 14 pounds, every woman in the room gasps, right? So you know it's ridiculous. How can an adult man be born again? That's what Nicodemus is saying here. He wants to know what he can do. He obviously can't do that, so Jesus, tell me what I can do. He wants to testify to what he's already done. You see, for Nicodemus, entering into the kingdom of heaven is about what you've done. And this is in line with Jewish theology of the time. Pharisees and men like Nicodemus believed that unless you were extraordinarily wicked, if you were a part of the people of God, and you said good things about God, and you looked forward to God, that you were in. That you couldn't be kept from the kingdom of God. That you couldn't be kept from eternal life and salvation. It was your right based on who you were and what you had done. Now this, if we think about it, is a natural reaction. People want to be given instructions on what they can do to please God. And often we think that entering the kingdom of God is a result of having our good outweigh our bad. But Jesus repeats himself to Nicodemus in even stronger language in verses 5 and 6. He says, Truly, truly, again, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Jesus is talking in completely different categories from Nicodemus. Without the new birth, nothing else matters. Nothing else will succeed. Until you are born again, you are not even interested in Jesus or salvation. You may be interested in some of the benefits that Jesus can bring. And that's why many churches and preachers focus upon that. How you can have a better family. How you can have more fulfillment at work. How you can have more respect amongst your peers. The emphasis is on what you need to do. But Jesus tells you that you must be born again. Only by having new spiritual life can you see your true need and find forgiveness in Jesus. 
So where does this new birth come from? That's the third thing we see this morning. The source of the new birth. Now Nicodemus obviously didn't know where this new birth comes from. He responds to Jesus with a ridiculous response. Do you want me to be born again from my mother? What are you talking about here? And Jesus gives us some help in verse 5. He says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so this being born of water and the Spirit is analogous to what Jesus is saying when he says, you must be born again. Now what does Jesus mean here? One option that some commentators think is that he's speaking about baptism, water, and conversion, spirit. That these are two things that happen that bring about the new birth. But that would assume that Nicodemus would understand something that has never happened yet. That is Christian baptism. And the Bible itself does not teach that baptism brings about a spiritual change in people. And so it is better to take these references as one statement in total. If you look closely, the English actually helps us here. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. John doesn't write, Jesus doesn't say, born of water and of the Spirit. There's only one preposition. Joined together by two nouns, water and the Spirit. It's one thing. It's one birth. And that one birth is from above. Remember, it's analogous to what Jesus said earlier in verse 3. That you have to be born again. And this being born again is being described as being born of water and born of the Spirit. There is only one birth, and that birth comes from above. You know, it's interesting. John is fond of using words that have double meanings, and this is one of those instances. The word again that we just take for granted under born again actually often means from above. Now, I can't explain to you why in Greek it can mean either. You're just going to have to trust me on that. But that's what it means. In other places in John's Gospel, three other places that are used in different chapters, the other three places, it means from above, and that's how it's translated. So to be born again, obviously that's what Nicodemus hears, because he says, how can I be born a second time? Means to be born from above. To be born from God. So if Jesus is saying to Nicodemus who is a theologian, a keeper of the law, an understander of God's word, if he says you must be born of water and the Spirit, we, I think, would do well to think, where in the Old Testament could we find this? Nicodemus should be having a reaction based on what Jesus says, oh, you're talking about verse so-and-so, right? We do that all the time. If I say to you, faith is the gift of God, some of you are already saying Ephesians 2.8 in your head. Right? I mean, we could play this game. Jesus is making a statement that Nicodemus should understand. And I think the best place for us to go is to the prophet Ezekiel, chapter 36. Ezekiel talks often about the new birth and new life. You may remember that God tells Ezekiel to go to the valley of dry bones and to preach to them and that they will come to life. 
That's like that definition of a new birth. Dead bones become alive. And this is what God tells Ezekiel in 36, verses 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. There's the water. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. Do you see what Ezekiel's saying there? By water and the spirit, you will be given new life, a new heart, and you will walk in my ways. Where before you were dead in your sins, where before you were wandering off into wickedness, by water and the Spirit, I will give you a new birth, a new life, and you will be mine. That's Old Testament John 3. That's what it is. John 3 shouldn't surprise us. John 3 is not an exclusively New Testament message. It's a Bible message. You must be born again. Ezekiel says it as clearly as Jesus says it. Jesus goes further in verse 6. He says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If we had any doubt where this new birth comes from, Jesus makes it crystal clear. He says, Only God can bring this about. It is a birth from the Spirit of God. Apart from a supernatural work of the Spirit of God, we are unable to even see, let alone enter, the kingdom of God. Again, I think Morris puts it well. Entry into the kingdom is not by way of human striving, but by that rebirth which only God can effect. But that should give us great hope. Because we don't have to bring this change about. God does. It's a work of God's grace. And it's interesting here, in verse 7, Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said to you, Nicodemus. Now I need to translate Jesus' phrase according to the Texas Bible. You ready? Y'all must be born again. It's a plural. Now stop and look at that for a moment. Jesus says to you, Nicodemus, all y'all need to be born again. What's he doing there? That's written to you. You see, it's not just Nicodemus that needs to be born again. It's not just because Nicodemus was a Pharisee. It's not just because Nicodemus asked a bad question. It's not just because Nicodemus came by night. All y'all need to be born again. Because Jesus knows what's in all men. He knows what everyone needs. And that's what he's telling us. This is not optional. Everyone who would believe on Jesus, who would obtain forgiveness, who would inherit eternal life, must be born again by the grace of God. Well, how then can we know if God has done this supernatural work? If it's something we can't do, then we can't rely on our list of what we've done and what we've checked off to make sure it's done. 
Instead, we have to look to the Lord for His mercy and His grace. But that doesn't mean we're unable to see God's work. And so Jesus gives us an example in verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Now, how many of you have been in or seen a hurricane? You know what it's like, right? I remember back when I was in seminary, during Hurricane Katrina, as it came all the way up through Mississippi, being in my house with my wife and my kids who were much smaller then, and looking outside, and you know how I knew there was a hurricane? The trees were going like this. They were bent over. I could tell the wind was blowing. I could tell even which way the wind was blowing and how hard it was blowing. And let me tell you, I'm not the sharpest pencil in the box. But I knew I didn't have to walk outside to tell if there was a hurricane there or not. I could see from the effect of the wind. And that's what Jesus tells us. This is another instance of, of John using this double word here. The word for wind is the exact same word for the word spirit. It's depending on context how you translate them. So we could even say, the spirit blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. That's why it is like that with everyone who is born of the spirit, because the spirit blows where he will. We don't control the spirit. We don't know why the spirit works like he does, but we can see the effects of the spirit's work. So what should we look for? Briefly, because I'm going to have to sum up the whole Bible for you here. The Bible tells us when someone is born again, when they've been given a new heart and given a new life and that God has changed them. Because you can't meet Jesus and stay the same. Saving faith is not reformation. It's not trying to do better. That takes us back to our third option from before. The people who think they can say some nice things about Jesus and not be changed and somehow enter the kingdom of heaven. What we look for in the new birth is first and foremost faith in Jesus Christ. That is trusting Jesus. Not just believing that he can do good things, not just believing that he can help us, but believing and trusting in him alone, laying aside all our lists, all our authority, all our credentials, and trusting only in his work. Second, it's repentance from sin. It's leaving sin and running to godliness. It's fighting against sin. It's not giving place to sin. It's not being satisfied with sin in our life. And then thirdly, the new birth is marked by new desires and affections. Someone who has the new birth wants to worship God, has a love for God's people, wants to be found in prayer, wants to read God's word. Their affections have been changed because their heart has been changed. They've been given a new birth and new life, and they are, as Paul puts it, a new creation in Christ. Not just bigger, better, faster, stronger. New completely. Do you see these evidences in your life? If you do, you should be encouraged. Even if you're not satisfied with where you are now. 
God's working on you. And if you are born again by the Spirit, and if you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sin, if you long to be with the Lord and with His people, then you know that God is at work. If you don't see them, then take hope. Because you're hearing exactly what you need to hear this morning. Jesus is telling you, through John, that you must be born again. And the good news of the gospel is that you can be. All you need to do is reach out in faith to Jesus. You can't do that without a work of God. So if you are willing to believe, to cast yourself on Jesus, you have every confidence that the Spirit is blowing you to Jesus. You can't make yourself into the person you need to be. But Jesus can. Come to Him. Now. Let's pray.